Would you look with me, please, at our text this morning, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 5, verses 9 to 13. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. And I want to make a note here. I I don't think it should be so-called. I think it should just be called. The Greek there, I think, to put in so-called is to introduce a note that obviously is implicit, but any called brother. In other words, anybody that says, I'm a Christian, or other people say he's a Christian. That's what brother means. I wrote to you not to associate with any called brother, named brother, if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the text here begins with this statement, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And our first question as we read this should be, where did he write us in his letter? This is the first letter of Corinthians. There isn't uh, a prior one. And so is he talking about this letter? Is he talking about some other letter he wrote to the Corinthians? What is he talking about? And the answer is probably that he's talking about another letter he wrote to the Corinthians that we don't have any record of, all right? Um, There are other ways that you can understand this, but let's just assume there was a letter to the Corinthians talking about sexual immorality. It's probably what would be in every letter to the Corinthians because of the nature of the city of Corinth, just as it would be to any letter to people that live in the post-internet world. And so he's saying, look, I've already written you not to associate with immoral people. Now, when we come to the text of Scripture, we're squirrely, all right? And that means that we're always looking for a way to make it look like we're giving God his due, but refusing to do so. And I don't know why it's called squirrely. It seems like an insult, to, insulting to squirrels, but weaselly. Maybe that's a better word, but then that's insults to weasels. So I I just don't know. George, do you have another way of thinking? Let's just say squirrely. All right. And so when we come to the text, what we do is we say, well, Mom, you told me that I wasn't supposed to put my hand in the cookie jar, but I didn't put my hand in the cookie jar. I turned it upside down and cookies just fell out. I didn't put my hand in the cookie jar. And there the kid is with crumbs all over their face. And obviously, they have not obeyed the intent of the law. But they make a big show of living by the letter of the law, which is, well, you told me not to put my hand in the cookie jar. I didn't put my hand in the cookie jar. And so what goes on here in terms of the Corinthians is exactly what goes on anytime you and I open the Bible and read it. We're always trying to act as if we're submitted to God. We make a big show of being obedient. We're good people, and then we do the exact opposite of what God says. And so Paul, writing to the Corinthians, had said not to associate with immoral people. So they said, well, I'm not associating with immoral people. And what they were doing was what? Well, they were avoiding going to the gay bar. 
I didn't go to the gay bar this week. You told me not to associate with immoral people, so I didn't go to the gay bar this week. And so you look at them and you say, did, did you want to go to the gay bar? Well, no, I don't want to go to the gay bar. Well, then probably you're not obeying God yet. <laughs> because probably if, if the thing that you naturally want to do is the thing that you're calling obedience to God, it's likely that probably that's not obedience to God, right? And so what they were doing is they were saying, you told us not to associate with immoral people, and so we don't go to the gay bar. And we don't hang out at People's Park because you told us not to associate with immoral people. And so Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I didn't at all mean with the immoral people of this world, with the covetous and swindlers, with idolaters. Then you'd have to go out of the world. In other words, it wasn't telling you to avoid associations with people at the gay bar, people at People's Park, or at other places where people who make no claim, you know, not to go and hang out at the sociology department of the university religious studies department. You know, because most of those people make absolutely no claim to be Christians. You know, I asked to pray the Lord's Prayer with you. You know, they're not talking about Sunday school. They don't claim to be Christians. He's saying, look, when I told you to avoid associating with immoral people, I was not telling you to avoid going to your faculty meeting. I wasn't telling you not to go to your Teamsters Union meeting, right? I was saying to not go to the place where people call themselves Christians and are immoral. And so we go, well, well now, wait a second. My family's Christian. This church is Christian. You know, all my friends are Christian. I go to a Christian dentist. You know? You can't be serious. You're not trying to get me to, like, not associate with my own family, are you? And now you know why you make a big show of not going to the gay bar, because you have to make some demonstration that you're obedient to the scriptures. And it says not to associate with immoral, so you pick up the immoral people that you don't want to have anything to do with, and you say, okay, I won't go to the gay bar. <laughs> you know, it's like big whoopee. That didn't cost you anything. But how about your mother? How about your sister? How about your child? And you say, well, I mean, we're related. I say, yeah, I know that. Do they call themselves Christian? You say, well, yeah, yeah, they call themselves Christian. But that's my brother. And I say, how about your next door neighbor? How about the people in church with you? And you say, well, you know, we're all sinners. Now, listen, right about now, some of you are thinking, this isn't how sermons are supposed to be. Sermons are just supposed to feed me. And that means impart objective, verifiable truth to me. Let me process it. Let me chew it. I don't want you chewing my food for me. You know, don't try to deal with my squirreliness because that's the Holy Spirit's job. But look, 
in the text, what we just read, is Paul or is Paul not dealing with the squirreliness of the Corinthians? <laughs> and the answer is obvious. He's dealing with their efforts to make a big show of giving God what he wants while denying to give God what he wants, right? Isn't that what he's doing? He's saying, hey, I said this, but you guys are doing this. Hey, 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 hey. Actually, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. Actually. So if the Apostle Paul in the text is like moving them back to where he gave them a command and dealing with their squirreliness, shouldn't a preacher today do that? Shouldn't I, instead of giving you objective truth, shouldn't I try to like anticipate your squirreliness? You know, which is another way of saying, shouldn't I be able to see my own heart well enough to know what your heart's going to want to do with the text and hedge off at the pass? Isn't that a blessing for me to do that? Don't you feel thankful every Sunday that I do that? Liar, liar, pants on fire, noses as long as a telephone wire. Somebody said yes. <laughs> No, he really did mean yes. This last week, somebody was saying to me that they'd talked to someone, I honestly don't remember who it was, and that that somebody had said, I think about one of the rebukes of the elders, that it had hurt, but then they'd realized it was true. And of course, I looked at them and I said, you know, when I get to heaven, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to spend my eternity from one person to the next telling them, you hurt me. And nobody will be able to say that to me. Listen, the Bible is God speaking to us. God. It is not Tim Bailey speaking to us. It's not your grandmother speaking to you. The Bible is God. And so when your grandmother or your pastor or your elder, your elder's wife or your son or your wife, when they take the word and apply it to you and it hurts, it's because it's God speaking to you. And when God speaks and he says that his word is sharper than a two-edged sword able to divide between joint and marrow, I want you to picture having the Holy Spirit take these words and them being a scalpel that cuts down to the sinews of your bone. And I want you to tell me, do you want that done without Novocaine? No, because it's painful. And so the word of God should always be, this is why in the Old Testament the prophets say, is not my word like a fire? Is it not like a hammer? You know, fires and hammers are painful. And this is God's blessing to you. In other words, you come to church, you go to Sunday school, you have family devotion, so the word of God will open you up like a scalpel. And so you can remember that God is in his heaven and you're on earth and that he is truthful when all men are liars. And then you know your order in life. You know what you're made to be, which is a repentant believing Christian, and you know what God is, which is perfectly true, perfectly holy, perfectly eternal, faithful, everything he is. And so here the apostle Paul is, and he's saying to them, listen, 
I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, but you guys got all squirrely on me, and you began to act as if not going to the gay bar was the way you obeyed that. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about not going to the convenience store and buying gas. I'm not talking about not going to union hall meetings. I'm not talking about not going to the, to the future farmers association meetings or to, to the county fair. I'm talking about your family and your church. And I'm saying what? He says, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother so-called brother, any named Christian. That's what the word brother means in the New Testament. Brother means an adopted son of God who is a member of the household of faith, which is the church. So what he's saying is, I wasn't saying the people in the world that make no claim to being Christians. I'm talking about the people who claim to be Christians, who call themselves brothers, who say they're believers, who say that they gave Jesus their heart. Those people, and now what is he saying about them? Now that we've got it out of our brain that we're talking about the people that hang out at bars and make no claim to Christian faith, all right, we know we're dealing with people in the church, people who claim to be Christians, people who go to the men's Bible studies and BSF and all the Christian apparatus. Those are the people we're talking about. And he says this, I wrote to you not to associate with any called brother if... He, if she, is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And when it says such a one, what it's referring to here is that you're not to limit your legalistic application of this to, those li- to that list, but it's to be people who are living out of conformity to God's holiness. All right? And he uses his illustrations of the kind of life he's talking about that we're to avoid associating with them. Immorality, covetousness, idolatry, reviling, drunkenness, and swindling. Now, I always like, when I deal with you, I always like to try, actually I should, probably shouldn't do that. Um, I always like to try to, 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 to get you to think about specificity, you know, concrete specificity. All right. So I read you a text of scripture, right? I read it to you. You heard it, right? And you know it doesn't apply to the union hall, right? And so here's my question. What Christian who is a drunkard will you not eat with? I'm not asking you what Christian is a drunkard you won't drink with. Many of you have Christian friends who are drunkards and you do drink with them. And you say, no, I don't. I say, yes, you do. Yes, you do. I'm talking about not eating with them. So, what Christian, somebody who calls himself, somebody who's named a Christian, member of a church, what Christian friend or relative do you have that you won't eat with because they're a drunkard? Now, that's a little bit hard because not many people are drunkards today, right? Up coming home from India yesterday, I saw this one, this one like liquor store in, in Mooresville. They had a little sign up and the sign said, join our rewards program. 
Yikes. So really, alcohol is maybe not so much today. And so let's punt on that one, and let's go on to um, this part about um, covetous. Do you know anybody that is grasping of material possessions or money? But that's probably not real big today, right? And especially America. You just get anything you want in America, so you don't really need to be grasping in America, right? And you're not rich, and only rich people are covetous, right? Here, you want to know something? Some of the richest people I've ever known are the least covetous people, okay? And I'm not even talking about my father-in-law, bless his heart, who gave it all away. I'm talking about pagans, some of the least covetous people I've ever known, ever been on the North Shore of Boston. (laughs) There are all these people that have inherited wealth from generations back, and they couldn't give a rip about their money. True. True. They're forgetful. They've gone to seed. And do you know who is really covetous? Just go to the local convenience store and watch people buying lottery tickets. Let me tell you, there's nobody covetous like a poor person. So, so, so you can't get away from this by saying, well, I don't know any rich people, because poor people are some of the most grasping, greedy people there are. You, you want to see greed, go into any casino. Greed has such a lock on people in our culture today that Indians have gotten rich off of it. And do you know that the people in these casinos, when they go in, do you know what they do? This is literally true. Every one of you that's of age should go into a casino and watch. Do you know that it's filled with people that are between the age of 50, 45, 50 to 90 with the emphasis on white hair or blue-white hair? And do you know those people literally are chained to their slot machines. They're chained. Did you know this? They sit there and they have this chain from their wrist to the machine. And it's the most hellish place, I really think the most hellish place you will see on earth. Covetousness. So here's my question. What person who calls himself a Christian, who's in your family or your church, who is covetous, do you refuse to eat with? And you say, well, I don't know anybody that's covetous. I say, well, (laughs) okay. So we've gotten rid of alcohol, and we've gotten rid of covetousness. All right, let's keep going. Okay, how about, what should we do next? Anybody have a preference? How about an idolater? What's an idolater? Well, back then, it would include people that would actually go to the temples and as a part of worship would eat meat sacrificed to idols. And so back then, you could be an idolater by 
taking part in the Lord's Supper and then going and taking part in, in worship of demons, all right? And so there would have been people in the church who would have thought that they could have both, like going to the mosque and going to the Lord's table, all right? And so how about idolaters? Well, we have trouble with that one, don't we? Because we don't really know any idolaters. And we don't really have any temptation to go to the mosque, right? Or to go to the Hindu temple. But what about IU basketball? I have no question in my mind that that ceremony in the second half with the flag, I keep telling you, it is pure idolatry. And so do you know anybody that their life is ordered around IU basketball? And you say, well, that's not idolatry. I say, looks like idolatry, acts like idolatry, smells like idolatry. All right, let's forget IU basketball. Do you know any idolatry? Do you know any idolaters, anyone at all? Or is idolatry dead today? Hmm? Hmm? How about actresses and actors? How about sports stars? How about the Republican Party? How about family values? No idolatry. It's all clean, right? Okay, so we don't have a problem with alcohol. And we don't have a problem with, what was my second one? Greed. And we don't have a problem with idolatry because, you know, there really isn't any idolatry. We've, you know, we're more sophisticated than that, right? Okay, what one do you want me to do next? How about a reviler? This really means, well, it really means reviling, you know. But you might know it as slanderer. In other words, people that are falsely accusing others and creating divisions. Everywhere they go, they're saying things which cause division and which are partially true, which means mostly false. So do you know anybody who makes a habit of creating divisions by falsely accusing people. And do you know any of them that are Christians that you won't eat with because they do that? Or is that not so much a problem today? Okay, let's move on. How about drunkards? Well, this one's... Oh, wait, we already did that one. Didn't I do that one already? Yeah. Okay, how about swindlers? People that make money um, that they don't deserve. They know how to turn a good profit. They know how to pounce when, when, when the lamb isn't looking. Okay? But we don't really have any of them today. Um, how about immoral persons? Immoral. The Greek word here is the same word that Jesus uses, the same root that Jesus uses when he says any man that divorces his wife and marries another and then 
except for porneia. The same word. So we're talking here about people who give themselves to sexual sin. All right? And you're all going to look at me and you're all going to say, well, we don't know anybody like that, right? We don't know anybody who is sexually intimate with somebody else and not married to them. Right? We don't know anybody that is constantly looking at naked flesh on the internet, right? We don't have that in our church, right? Right? I mean, at some point, you should be hanging your head and you should be red in the face and embarrassed. You should be shamed. You should be shamed. Because the truth is, you will not obey this scripture. You will not obey it. You. You can't name me one person, most of you, who you have ever refused to eat with because of any violation of these commands. Now, we're not talking about a man that looks at a woman's body when he's at a store. We're talking about a man who always looks at a woman's body when he's at stores. In other words, don't get all weasley on me and start saying, well, we're all sinners. Yeah, I know that. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, the church is filled with sinners. Yes, I get that. We're talking about people who habitually, habitually give themselves to alcohol. It's a habit, it's a besetting sin. They have not confessed it to the elders. They're not under discipline for it. They revel in it. We have alcoholics in this church. We have sodomites in this church. We have greedy men in this church. We have mothers who are idolaters with their children in this church. But the ones I'm speaking about are ones who confess this is sin and are under the care of the older women and the older men of the church. There's absolutely nothing wrong with confessing your sin. People aren't going to stop eating with you if you confess your sin. They're going to eat with you with joy if you confess your sin. He's not talking about people here who are repentant. He's talking about people who say, I am a sodomite and I am absolutely clean before God. As a matter of fact, my church welcomes all people. My church is an affirming church. One of the people that has been in our church in the past. Her sister is the pastor of a church that identifies itself this way. This church, so-and-so church, is a group of folks. This is the church, okay, off their website. Is a group of folks figuring out how to be a liturgical, Christocentric, which is Christ-centric, Social justice-oriented, queer-inclusive, incarnational, contemplative, irreverent, ancient future church with a progressive but deeply rooted theological imagination. 
we live in a day, we live in a day when that is our own family. Do you understand me? This is not them. This is our own brothers and sisters, both biologically and spiritually, the people who claim to be Christians that we're related to. They're the ones that go to that church. Do you understand me? In the name of Christ, my former denomination last week or two got sufficient numbers of presbyteries to approve having sodomites as pastors now. In the name of Jesus Christ, my former church says that abortion can be an act, quote, can be an act of faithfulness before God. And if you look at evangelical churches, evangelical churches and parachurch organizations are doing precisely the same thing. What they're doing is saying that we shouldn't be so condemning of those who are differently sexed. That's not what they say. And it's interesting. It's never the bestiality people that they're interested in including. You know, nobody ever thinks that church on the east side of town when it says it's an inclusive community is talking about people that are into antelopes. What do we, we know precisely what they're talking about. There's only one sexual sin right now that they're demanding, and that is sodomy. But what about age of consent and children? Do you really think that's not coming next? Can anybody be so stupid as to think that it's going to stop with sodomy? It started with fornication, petting. Luce Smeads wrote that book, Sex for Christians, back in the 60s, published by IVP. He said petting was fine if it helped you to avoid intercourse. Now, I, I might not have it exactly right, but that's what Luce Smeads, a professor at Fuller, said. And so we went ahead and normalized fornication, and then we normalized adultery and divorce and remarriage. And now it's sodomy. Where do you think it's headed? Can, can you really fault me for asking you where you think it's headed? If you were in my position and you were preaching, wouldn't you ask you, where do you think it's headed? <laughs> Am I really a bad man for asking you to think, where do you think it's headed? Oh, come on, stop pointing out things. We know where it's headed. It's headed, the next thing is going to be the age of consent. It's going to go down, people. Children will become the next sex objects. And then it will be animals. And you just think, oh, please. Would you stop take, talking about sex? And I quote Spurgeon to you who said when people complained about him preaching against sexual immorality, he said, when you stop doing it, I'll stop preaching about it. Right? And so people, listen. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is, I wrote you before and I said, don't associate with sexually immoral people. And you know, I didn't mean not to go to the gay bar. I'm talking about people who make a claim to Christian faith who are immoral or who are greedy or who are, all right, with such a one, don't even eat. And then he says, what? 
he says we are to judge, right? Here's what he says. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? And and what that means is, forget judging outsiders. And then he says, are we not to judge those within the church? All right. Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? If you look at the flow of the text, what you should see is that the Apostle Paul, in dealing with us being Weasley, is three times trying to get it in our heads that we're wrong to judge the world and that we're right when we judge the church. We're wrong to judge the world, that's God's sphere. We're right to judge the church. And I guarantee you it is always our habit to judge the world and not to judge the church. The Apostle Paul keeps saying, don't judge the world, do judge the church. And we keep saying, I'll avoid those associations and I won't judge the world, or I won't associate with the world, and I will associate with the church. And he says, no, take the Christians and don't have anything to do with the ones who are greedy. You say, well, I don't know anybody greedy because there's nobody rich here. He says, don't, not the slanderers. Well, I don't know anybody that lies. Uh, sometimes people just aren't, are misled. And don't, <laughs> and I go home tired because dealing with Squirrely thoughts in people is very hard. You know, the Apostle Paul says, oh, when I wrote you not to associate with you more, I didn't mean the people of this world. Wasn't telling you not to go down to People's Park. Wasn't telling you not to go to the faculty room. I was saying, don't associate with people in the church in your own family who use the name of Jesus and give themselves to sin. Don't judge the world. God will handle that. Are we not to judge those in the church? And from the entire history of the church comes an overwhelming answer. Are we not to judge those who are within the church? And everybody said what? No, we're not. And so you'll go to every single church of the country today, and what you'll find is that the sermons and the Sunday school classes and the conversations before and after church are an attempt for everyone to feel superior to people who make no claim to Jesus Christ. You know? And we're so courageous and so godly and so holy, and we make such a show of being obedient to God, and we judge the world. We judge Washington, we judge Walt Disney, we judge Las Vegas, we judge absolutely everything except ourselves, our brothers and sisters, and the people we sit next to. And then we just constantly, yeah, thank you, dear brother. And then we just constantly make excuses for the people that we have affection for and that we're related to. Listen, every text of Scripture should have some obedience from us. What does it mean to be buried in baptism and raised to new life in Christ unless we're buried in baptism and raised to new life in Jesus Christ? 
What does it mean to live a new life in Jesus Christ if there's no obedience? What does it mean for us to claim to be obedient and to have an incredibly important text like this? Couldn't be more specific. Couldn't be more applicable. And I say to you, where do you obey this? When have any of you ever once obeyed this? And you say, well, our church once excommunicated somebody. And I went down another aisle at the supermarket when I saw them. (laughs) I say, well, that's a step in the right direction. But do you realize it's not talking here about excommunication only. It's assuming that one of the ways the church functions is by us all doing this so the elders don't have to do it. (laughs) I mean, you understand? Don't you think I'd be encouraged if some of you actually did my work before I had to do it? Like a few years ago, going into an apartment of a bunch of young men of our church, walked into the kitchen, and there, on a shelf, the whole way around the kitchen, the whole way around was one bottle of liquor after another. And I can't even tell you how many of you were in that house. And I guarantee you, not one of you spoke to those men about their love of alcohol. Not one of you. And so being a good pastor, I thought, well, if my people haven't said anything, I'm certainly not going to. After all, these, these were, these were people who, who were like sons to me. I mean, am I really going to talk to my son about his use of alcohol? I mean, so there you all were. You'd been through that apartment. You'd seen all that liquor. And you really think that you can have a bunch of young men living away from their parents without having alcoholism in that house? Here's an idea. If there's a bunch of liquor bottles out in the open, probably there's a problem among one of the men, maybe two, you know, maybe two. And maybe you should say something, and then you might come up, go fishing, you might get a a strike. And then you know it's time for you to do what God made you for, which is to discipline them. Because they have the privilege of being disciplined by other Christians because they claim to be a Christian. And when you claim to be a Christian, you have the privilege of being disciplined by other Christians. Have you ever thought of it as being a privilege? Do you realize that if you're naming the name of Jesus, one of the the first things that you get is the privilege of being disciplined? People talk to me sometimes and they say about authority. They say, well, you have a right to do it. And it's about discipline. And I always, I always stop them and I say, I have a what? You know, dad sees his son speak rudely to his wife. And by gum, he has a right to rebuke his son. I mean, come on, you all realize that's twisted, right? I mean, no father sits there and listens to his son being disrespectful to his wife 
and thinks, well, I have a right to do something about that. Do you understand what I'm saying? What he has is a duty, an obligation, a responsibility. And then it doesn't have to be about his feelings and his son's feelings. It's a pat, that's it. <laughs> you know, he doesn't think, well, is this my perquisite? He has an obligation. And so when you read this text, what you realize is you have an obligation. No right. No privilege. The person that you will discipline has the privilege of being disciplined. That son has the privilege of a father. But the father has an obligation. He has a duty. He has authority. And it weighs on him. And he thinks, oh no, I have to spank my son. And he does it simply because he's been buried in baptism. And he's dead to sin. And he's alive to Christ. And that's the whole meaning of being a Christian. You're dead to sin. You're alive to Christ. So if you have anybody who has said, nope, I don't think I want to spend time with you. Nope, don't think I'll meet you for coffee. Nope, don't think I'll do this. Or somebody who's come to you and said, hey, what's with all those alcohol bottles all over your house? Somebody who's come to you and said, you know, you're avaricious. You know, every joke with you is a double entendre. You know, you have, and you say, well, what's that? And I say, go home and look it up. There are little tells that indicate sexual immorality. Listen, being a member of a Christian church means that you get the privilege of being disciplined. And if you don't want the privilege of being disciplined, <laughs> you know what I'm going to say, don't you? Don't join. I mean, okay, okay. Let's just assume I'm, ta I'm teaching my children right now. And if I was teaching my children, I could do it like this. Listen, if you join a church, you have the privilege of discipline. All right? And if you don't want the privilege of being disciplined, then... Duh! <laughs> don't join. You know, in other words, this is so obvious, I can't believe I'm saying it, but since you're so stupid, I'll go ahead and say it. <laughs> Taylor, you wouldn't be offended by me doing that, right? Saying a duh to you, right? No, Taylor says no, so you shouldn't be offended either. Okay? Listen, if we're to get to heaven, it's not going to depend upon us using the right vocabulary. What the Bible says is, Without holiness, no man will see God. And holiness is hard work. And it doesn't get easier as you get older. Okay? And so the church is the company of those who want to be disciplined in a relationship where they have the privilege of certain people set apart for that work. That's what church officers are. And then they get on the road or on the train, and they know the conductor's going to come through and ask them for their ticket and punch it, right? And someday, through the preaching of the word, 
through the discipline of the Lord's table where we have to examine ourselves and see whether we're angry at somebody and then not come until we've made it right. You see, everywhere you look in the church is discipline. That's your privilege. That's why you join a church. You join a church so that you can have the privilege of being disciplined. And because you know how twisted your heart is. (laughs) You don't join a church because you look at the preacher and say, well, his heart isn't twisted, so I think I can join up. No, you, you listen to him and you say, he knows himself. And so I'm encouraged that he might actually be able to see how twisted I am. <laughs> because he's pretty twisted. I mean, isn't that what you always think when you read the Apostle Paul? <laughs> Every time you read the Apostle Paul, you think, boy, the Holy Spirit spoke in power through that man. You know, why would he put alcohol in there? Doesn't he know Christians don't drink? But he says, no, 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 no. Always Christians are given to alcoholism. And so listen, if a guy gives in and just swims in it, he's a lover of alcohol, then don't eat with him. All right? Don't eat with him. Don't eat with him. Don't eat with him. Don't eat with him. Listen, people, we can't redefine what right and wrong are. Okay, you love alcohol, you love sex, lust, you love making a profit, you love dividing people with slander, okay, confess it, go under discipline, and that's your privilege. And I pity those of you that don't have that privilege. Now, can you understand what I'm saying? Come on. Come on, be black. Come on. Come on, speak to me. Thank you. You know what the best gift of a wife is? When you get married, you have the privilege of being disciplined by your wife. And do you know what divorced men are that leave their wives? They're men that refuse to be disciplined by their wives. Hey, hey. (laughs) Anybody agree with this? Come on, come on. Uh, 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 uh. You resemble that implication? Yeah. How about you, Stephen? David? Annie? You discipline your husband? Listen, people, don't ever make the mistake of thinking that I don't love you. I talk to you this way because I love you. And because this is how Meryl and I raise our family. And I know a lot of your families are much more gentle and polite. But the important thing is to get the work done, right? And I do love you. I do love you, okay? All right, let's celebrate the Lord's Supper.